Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, the Book of Romans, chapter 8, the second continuation. Last week in Romans chapter 8, we concluded by discussing the status of believers before God during our lifetimes. We also discussed that Yeshua, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, explained how He will determine our status in the future during His reign over the Millennial Kingdom. That is, what will be our position in the kingdom of heaven on earth once it has been fully realized and what are the criteria for determining that status? Christ defined it in terms of our assignment to one of two basic groups that he labeled as the greatest and the least. If one strove to obey the law of Moses and taught others to do so, he says you will be made part of the group called the greatest. If one determined not to obey the law of Moses and taught others that the law is irrelevant to them, then you will be assigned to the group called the least. But, since that is for the future, after Christ returns... What, dis, what determines your status before God in the here and now? Now, I'm not speaking of saved versus not saved, but rather of our status before God as believers. And while this is not nearly as cut and dried as Yeshua explained it regarding future times, it is clear that as a worshiper of Yeshua, we can harbor one of two possible attitudes and therefore have one of two possible relationships with, uh, before God during our lifetimes. One in which we are seen as a servant, the other in which we are seen as a son. Each of these are a good status. But just as with Yeshua's definition of status in his millennial kingdom in Matthew 5, so we see a hierarchy of lesser and greater status for believers in the here and now. Now, in the world of the first century AD, especially within Judaism, there was a distinct understanding of the inherent advantages of a son over a servant. A servant was essentially a slave, and a slave usually obeyed his master out of fear. A servant was always, being subservient to his master, afraid of the consequences if he didn't obey. On the other hand, a son was family. He loved his father. His father loved him. And so the son wanted to please his father and then obeyed out of love and out of gratitude. However, biblically and within Judaism, there was a class of people called servants of God, another class, literally, called sons of God. 
both a servant of God and a son of God were of high and preferred status. Nonetheless, a servant of God was a lower status than a son of God, thus the attendant privileges were different. The pattern for the difference between the two classes was established and it can be demonstrated within the pattern of the Levites, the tribe of Levi. Now the Levites were set apart from the other tribes of Israel at Mount Sinai in order to be servants for God. They were God's designated priests. And interestingly, we find out that there could be no land inheritance for Levite priests, for God's servants. No land inheritance. In fact, from Mount Sinai onward, they were not considered as part of Israel in the sense of having the same advantages and rights that all the other tribes of Jacob held. The most important advantage the Levites lost in the bargain was the right of inheritance. Listen to Deuteronomy 18.1 The Kohanim, the priests, who are Levites, and indeed the whole tribe of Levi, is not to have a share or an inheritance with Israel. Instead, their support will come from the food offered by fire to Adonai and from whatever else becomes his. They will have no inheritance with their brothers because Adonai is their inheritance. So the servants of God, the Levite priests, would receive only a spiritual inheritance but not an earthly inheritance. However, in Israelite culture, among all tribes other than Levi, the sons of a father had inheritance rights, with the firstborn receiving an extra allotment. So following the pattern, sons of God will receive both heavenly and earthly benefits because they are legal heirs. Servants have no legal rights to land and property and so will get primarily heavenly benefits. If you had a choice, if you had a choice, which would you rather be before God? A servant or a son? Not a hard choice, is it? Interestingly, Paul explains that with the advent of Yeshua, he has given us all a choice. In Romans 8.14, Paul said, All who are led by God's Spirit are sons of God. Hmm. So since all believers are given God's Holy Spirit upon their trust in Yeshua, then why aren't we all given the status as God's sons? Now first, I want to say that essentially from a, a, a spiritual perspective, son status is available for the taking. But as believers, we have to trust God that we actually are sons and then respond accordingly. 
Otherwise, if we do not apprehend our position as sons, then we will be seen as servants due to that lack of faith, due to that lack of trust. The key words in that verse from 8.14 are led by. We must be led by God's Spirit. Not just have God's Spirit. Now Paul has spent the last few paragraphs explaining this frustrating conundrum that believers face. We live with both God's Spirit and the spirit of an evil inclination living side by side within us. So we find ourselves constantly being pulled in opposite directions. I mean, that is, at times we disobey God and sin even though we know better. The law is written on our hearts. Thus as believers, we have the challenge of more or less retraining ourselves. We must learn to be led by God's Spirit rather than to be led by the spirit of our evil inclination, the spirit of our former master. Such a thing is an ongoing process. It requires determination. It requires perseverance. Thus, just as it is obvious that any clear-thinking believer ought to strive to be greatest rather than least in the kingdom of heaven, even though either way we will still be members of the kingdom of heaven in good standing, we also ought to strive to be sons of God rather than servants of God, even though both are good things, both indicate we are redeemed, See, the irony is that we ought not to strive for the higher statuses, son and and greatest, purely because it benefits us. Rather, the benefit should come as a natural outcome of wanting to please God by obeying Him. Seeking a greater status is the wrong motive for obedience. Frankly, we rather taint the outcome if our main purpose for striving to obey God is what we get for ourselves in return. Such a wrong attitude is at the heart of what propels that prosperity doctrine of our day. Thus concludes Paul, since because of Christ there is no condemnation, there's no death sentence, for those who trust Messiah Yeshua, then we should set fear on the shelf. We should not take on the attitude of a servant who obeys his master out of fear. Rather, we should take on the attitude of a son who obeys his master out of love. So, let's reread a portion of Romans chapter 8 today. Romans chapter 8. We'll start at verse 18. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1410. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. I don't think the sufferings we're going through now are even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us in the future. 
The creation waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was made subject to frustration. Not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it. But it was given a reliable hope that it too would be set free from its bondage to decay and it would enjoy the freedom accompanying the glory that God's children will have. We know that until now the whole creation has been groaning as with the pains of childbirth. Not only it, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we continue waiting eagerly, eagerly to be made sons, that is to have our whole bodies redeemed and set free. It was in this hope that we are saved. But if we see what, hope, what we hope for, it isn't hope. After all, who hopes for what he already sees? But if we continue hoping for something we don't see, then we still wait eagerly for it with perseverance. Similarly, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know how to pray the way we should. But the Spirit Himself pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words and the one who searches hearts knows exactly what the Spirit is thinking because His pleadings for God's people accord with God's will. Furthermore, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called in accordance with his purpose because those who form those whom he knew in advance he also determined in advance would be conformed to the pattern of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he thus determined in advance he also called and those whom he called he also caused to be considered righteous and those whom he caused to be considered righteous he also glorified what then are we to say to these things well, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up on behalf of us all, is it possible that having given us his son, he would not give us everything else too? So who will bring a charge against God's chosen people? Certainly not God. It's one. He is the one who causes them to be considered righteous. Who punishes them? Certainly not the Messiah Yeshua who died and more than that has been raised and is at the right hand of God and is actually pleading on our behalf. Who will separate us from the love of Messiah? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution or hunger? Poverty? Danger? War? As the Tanakh puts it, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are super conquerors through the one who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor other heavenly rulers, neither what exists nor what is coming, neither powers above, powers below, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which comes to us through the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. speaks of the sufferings that we are enduring. 
Does he mean to indicate some sort of tribulation? Hard times. Persecution. Perhaps. But the context of the dialogue more seems to be about suffering with the dilemma of having God's spirit within us and yet retaining remnants of our old nature that pull at us and frustrate us as we strive to behave and think as God wants us to. But we fail. And he probably also means suffering in the sense of personal identity with our suffering servant Yeshua and that we are willing to take on the hurt and the pain of others in order to show mercy and to tell them of God's love for them see as of the time of Paul's writing this letter to the Romans which is some years before his journey to Rome when he was a prisoner there was no organized persecution of Jews going on in the Roman Empire Yes, in some areas there was bigotry against Jews, as there always has been and always will be against various races and ethnic groups. However, the Roman Empire operated on the premise of religious tolerance and cultural diversity, to a point. And in fact, it is recorded that Jews were given special dispensation by the Roman government because some elements of their religion were quite demanding. The evidence is that neither the traditional Jews nor the Gentile and Jewish followers of Christ were being systematically persecuted at this time as they soon would be under Nero. So we probably shouldn't think of Paul's reference to suffering as any kind of dangerous tribulation going on beyond some non-believing Jews giving Paul and other believing Jews a pretty hard time occasionally. Now there's a couple of things we must always keep in mind as we read any letter from Paul. First of all, while Paul believed in an end times that involved the return of Christ, he did not see it as something in the far future. Rather, he thought it was imminent. Virtually something that could and likely would happen within his lifetime. This is why he had such a great urgency to evangelize. It's why in Romans chapter 9 we'll see him express a willingness to forsake even his own salvation in exchange for bringing Israel in general to salvation. Now this of course is an expression of his passion, not something that was possible in reality. Now the second thing is that Paul's understanding of what glory means. Glory as it pertains to the future of believers in the world to come is grounded upon the notion of endurance of sufferings and persecutions as proof of faithfulness to Yeshua. This notion is very much the same perspective that the essence held, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it is expressed in terms they used to refer to themselves. They called themselves, the essence did, terms like poor in spirit, paupers of grace, desperate of justification, among many others. 
These were common terms found in the Dead Sea Scrolls to express the essence determination that suffering was the lot of those who sought righteousness as they waited for their deliverance from the sons of darkness. With the translation and the release of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is clearer than ever that there was great agreement and interaction between the essence and Yeshua. And no doubt Paul was keenly aware of their views, some of which integrated quite well with the beliefs of the Pharisees, of which he was one. Now what interests me most about this verse is the statement that will that we will eventually be heirs to a glory that will be revealed in the future. That is, <clears throat> the reward for our perseverance of our current state of spiritual conundrum that comes because of our firm trust in Yeshua will be revealed at a later time in the future, in the world to come. Olam Haba. And the reality is that to this day we really don't know what our heavenly future looks like. Although there's no end of speculation from the pulpit and from books, we simply must, we must have faith that the general characterization of our future with Christ will be as wonderful as promised. Greater than anything that's even possible on this earth as it stands today. Now verse 19 is a bit difficult to deal with because Paul speaks of the creation. He speaks of it as kind of a living entity of some sort. I think what is really happening is that he is speaking of the creation in grammar terms that we call personification. That is, things that are not human are spoken of as though they had human characteristics. That's personification. So when Paul speaks of the creation, it's my opinion that he's referring to everything in existence that is not human. Plants, animals, rocks, the oceans, the stars in the sky, so on. And that all of these things that God created are frustrated. Why? Humans have ruined everything. Humans have ruined everything. And they know, the creation knows, a restoration is coming. And they're growing weary of waiting for it. Again, these terms like frustrated and waiting are not meant to be taken literally. These are words of emotion applied to non-human things. Personification. The creation also seems to know that God's work towards the redemption of his creation is predicated upon the revelation of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? We are believers. The appearance of believers in the Messiah Yeshua is the signal 
to the creation that restoration has begun. So folks, even though you may have never thought of yourselves in this way, you yourselves, as believers, are a sign that God is in active process of restoring His creation to its original perfection and even greater. Now why is the creation in such an anxious state? Because as Paul says in verse 21, it's decaying. It's decaying. Its condition worsens. It decays more, hour by hour. This decaying was not supposed to have happened to the creation. It's a result of Adam's arrogance and sin. And further says Paul, the same freedom from death that God's children, another synonym for sons of God or for believers, have now attained, this is also going to happen for the creation in general at the appropriate time. In other words, when the creation is redeemed, it will stop decaying. It will be saved from death. Now, suffering birth pains is mentioned as describing the condition of the creation. Now, the illustration of birth pains was a common one in Judaism. It was generally used to describe the sufferings of the creation as it awaited the beginning of the Messianic age, the rule of Messiah, and what was loosely called the entrance into, into the world to come. So Paul is not inventing anything new here. The term birth pains he uses was not only common, it was meant in Judaism precisely in the same context he means it in this passage. It was an end times expression. Verse 23 then says a mouthful. First it is said that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now a Jewish believer would have well understood that reference. Likely, few Gentile believers would have. First let me comment that the words are not that we are the first fruits of the Spirit, but rather we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Let's consider this statement from the Jewish cultural perspective. Even the diaspora Jews were well aware of Bichrim, the festival of first fruits, also known as Shavuot, which, although known as the Feast of Weeks, was actually a second first fruits festival. Bichrim concerned the barley harvest, Shavuot, the wheat harvest, the cadence of weeks later. And in both cases, the first fruits is the sign that the harvest is ripening and soon it will be time for the reaping. And as used here, first fruits is a metaphor that is simply another way of saying that believers having the first fruits of the Spirit are the sign or the pledge that harvesting time is at hand. In Judaism, first fruits and harvesting are symbolic of redemption. 
But in verse 23, Paul also expands on his assertion of believers as being sons of God. He says that since we are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we're waiting to be made sons of God. And then he defines the phrase being made sons of God as having our entire bodies redeemed and set free. This goes back to what we discussed earlier. Becoming a son of God is more of a process than an event. In fact, redemption is a process. Little about it is an all-at-once event. It is similar to the concept of the kingdom of God. Yeshua said that with the coming of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God has arrived on earth. It is here now. And yet, it in no way is fully manifested. It's in its infancy. The kingdom of God then, and even today, is but a fraction of what it will eventually become. So even though we can be called sons of God today, as believers we have a long way to go before all the privileges and honors and manifestations of what it means to be sons of God are fully realized. We are currently experiencing but the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Now in verse 24, Paul explains that it is the the hope for this full completeness of becoming sons of God that we wait for with such great expectation. And it is our salvation. That's what gives us reason for this hope. But he ends this verse by having us remember that as of now, our hope remains fully faith-based. Yet, from a philosophical viewpoint, we can't call what we call hope, hope, once it comes to its fullest realization. Then it's not hope anymore. So we ought to rejoice in our hope, just as we will rejoice when it's no longer hope, but it's reality. Now, it's always been interesting to me that some elements of Christianity want to paint a a rosy picture of what life becomes when we finally believe. The idea more or less being that once we come to faith, our troubles are over. And if we do have trouble, it's because we just don't have enough faith. In other words, struggles and failures and woes in our life indicate a believer of little faith. None of this matches what Scripture tells us. And the brutally frank Paul is regularly warning believers and seekers, by the way, that coming to faith in Christ brings with it obligations, duties, suffering, not utopia. Thus our waiting for our hope to be fully realized is going to need a lot of perseverance. 
And because we are still not perfected, and especially our fleshly bodies are not perfected, we are full of weaknesses. And that makes persevering all the harder. But Paul says, the Holy Spirit of God is fully aware of this. And He's here to help. Now I bring this up because it is among my pet peeves that some Christian leaders think that God and the Christian life must be presented to their congregations as super appealing, as a sort of divine welfare system. It just fixes all of our problems for us, fulfills all of our dreams. My peeve is, is that not only is that not true, but especially when immature new believers buy into this lie and the harshness of life comes along to dash this false hope, they fall away from the faith. Blaming God. Or maybe even renouncing Christ altogether. So let me be clear. Any hope we have is not in our daily happiness. It's not in getting that job we want, the perfect spouse we see. Not even in finally getting that 70-inch 4K flat screen, a smart TV with a... Never mind. Our true hope is more future than present. Our salvation has secured our eternal future, not our temporal present. Oh, without doubt. I mean, there is no doubt. Life is so very much better in the present with God than without Him. We can go to Him in prayer. He will offer us comfort. He will give us peace in impossible circumstances. He is a God who will heal us, protect us in many instances, give us guidance and wisdom when we choose to listen to Him. That's always a problem, isn't it? In fact, Paul says that often we don't know how to pray. So God will even help us with that. The Holy Spirit living in us knows our needs. He knows our sufferings. He knows our longings. He will pray for us in the proper worship and prayer. The way, the way it ought to be. The way all of our prayers ought to be. In God's will. And as you think about what I've just said... What God has promised and what your current current circumstances are, I ask you to face a stark reality. We are redeemed, but we live in an unredeemed universe. And there are times when we can feel overwhelmed by not just what comes our way personally, but what we see happening all around us. We can become full of fears and foreboding. We get depressed. We get anxious. Our faith doesn't insulate us from the growing darkness of this world. 
fact, I think it makes us all the more aware of it. The wickedness and the deprivation so prevalent all around us which used to just kind of go unnoticed by us suddenly comes alive in vivid color. All too apparent when we believe. It also becomes apparent there's very little we can actually do about most of it. Yeshua's advice is don't worry and don't fret. Turn to God in prayer. So I submit to you that part of the God-ordained process of our becoming perfected in Him is when we have our eyes open to how God actually sees this fallen world. How it pains us because it pains Him. And so we learn how to be more dependent upon God and that means to pray effectively and earnestly. Well, the concept that begins in verse 27 flows right on into verse 28. It's, it's the concept of intercession. That is, the Holy Spirit intercedes. He plays an active role as he sees fit and the lives of believers even going so far as to help us to pray. Paul begins verse 28 with the words, We know. It is meant in the sense of taking something for granted as common knowledge. Without doubt he's expressing some kind of a traditional declaration that was well known among Jews. In fact, whereas Christianity has adopted this verse as among the most memorized and quoted, noting correctly that this is the beginning of Paul speaking of the concept of election, the reality is Paul is speaking more about the election of Israel as God's chosen people than about the election of Gentiles to form a new group of people called Christians. And it's not that it can't apply to Christians, but we must realize that God's election of Israel and His ongoing faithfulness to Israel has been an underlying theme of this letter to the Romans up to this point. Now when Paul says that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God, he means good in the sense of favor. And when he speaks of those who love God, while it can certainly apply to believers, it more aptly applies in this particular context to Israel. Again, throughout Romans, an underlying message has been that God created a set-apart people called by His name, and then God gave these set-apart people His covenants, and since doing so, He has not rejected them, He has not replaced them with somebody else. God has remained faithful to His chosen people despite their unfaithfulness to Him. Paul continues that the Lord has an irresistible, unstoppable purpose for his people. And while this is referring to Israel in the main, it's certainly on another level, can include Gentile believers in Yeshua. The next several words about knowing these people in advance, 
and determining in advance who they would be, who would be conformed to Yeshua, bring us into this controversial topic of predestination. This is where every pastor needs a bulletproof vest. The idea that Calvin holds about predestination is that before any of us were born, God not only foreknew, but chose, actively chose, who would trust his son for salvation. And those whom God decided would become sons of He decided God decided would become sons of God, He called to be righteous at just the right time. We didn't choose salvation. The salvation chose us. Free will in this sense, in Calvin's sense, is very limited. Now I don't want to get off track on the issue of predestination because like with the doctrine of the Trinity, there's not just one doctrine of predestination. There are a few differences among them. Just for now know that it is this passage that influenced Calvin's doctrine of predestination the most. Now I want to pause and reorient ourselves. It is close to universally agreed among Bible scholars that Romans chapters 7 and 8 are fully linked and I completely agree with them. It is obvious. They are very nearly a single unit. And if we want the best sense of it, we need need to mentally erase the the chapter and verse markers and read 7 and 8 as the whole it was originally written as and intended. Chopping it up with chapter and verse markers that never existed until about a thousand years after the New Testament was written obscures its, its unity. So let's remember back now to the opening words that started this long unified section that we're still in. This long unified section spoken by Paul begins with verse 1 of chapter 7. There it said, Surely you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who understand Torah. Here's may say the law. That the Torah has authority over a person only so long as he lives. Or in the complete James Version, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Who does Paul say he's speaking directly to? Who does he say he's speaking to? Those who in this context he calls his brothers. How does he define his brothers? As those who understand Torah. Those who understand the law, right? Not a trick question. Clearly he says he's speaking to his Jewish brethren. So throughout chapter 7 and 8, he continues to tie what he's saying back to this verse. 
by regularly calling those he is addressing his brethren, my brethren. You following me? He is addressing primarily the Jewish believers because since chapter 1, he has been defending God's election, God's choosing of Israel to be his set-apart people. And the gospel itself is proof of this. Because the gospel is how God is rescuing his people from the hole of sin and death they have dug for themselves. The inclusion of Gentiles as additional recipients of the gospel, especially by Paul, has caused some Jews to ask why God is bringing Gentiles into the fold. And in turn, some Gentiles have wondered if God accepting them means maybe he's turning his back on his ancient people and choosing a new people. That's the question. It was complicated. It was confusing. So Paul has been walking a delicate line. But my point is this. The election of God's people, those from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and defending their continuing election has been an important theme of Romans. One that Gentile Christian Bible students and teachers just seem to overlook. And it is in that continuing context of Paul primarily addressing Jews that we should read chapter 8. And especially so, these difficult words beginning at verse 28. So in verse 31 now, after saying all these difficult things, Paul then asks in typical rabbinical fashion, what then are we to say? And this introduces us to this standard format whereby a halakhic ruling, that is a Jewish religious ruling, is about to be made. And Rabbi Paul's ruling is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's his conclusion. That's his ruling. Hear that again. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who's us? Who's he been talking to? Who is it that God's of, God is for? Where in any of Paul's narrative has there been some overriding concern that people in general are against believers, Jew or Gentile, and so Paul is trying to convince them that God is for them, so don't worry about what people are saying about you. It doesn't exist. In fact, whatever opposition there's been, and although we've not found any in the book of Romans, has been from Jews, not from Gentiles. And it has been against Paul specifically as the agitator of trouble. So as to what we just discussed, us is Paul and his Jewish brethren as he stated to begin chapter 7. Here's what Paul is arguing for. It is self-evident that if God is for his own chosen people, us, Paul says, 
then God has not and will not reject his people. He's not going to reject those who he's for. That's his point. As simple as it sounds, that's it. In fact, as we're going to see in Romans chapters 9 through 11, Paul will vigorously defend Israel on God's behalf because of the accusation that since Israel has rejected their Messiah, then God has decided to reject Israel. And by the way, before we get to those chapters, it is not that there is any historical or biblical evidence that some wide scale or even meaningful protest from Gentile believers that Jews should not be regarded as, judge, as, as God's people because most of Israel rejected their Messiah has even surfaced yet. Rather it is that Paul anticipates that due to the controversial nature of Gentile inclusion in partaking of Israel's covenants that it is an accusation that's bound to come up so he's going to handle it and deflect it right now. And as Paul will argue, Israel's election is God's chosen people. His elect has not been, it will not, it will never be revoked by God. And no power and no principality and no human king have the authority or the ability to do so. But guess what? the bishop of the church of Rome in the 4th century decided he could declare that the church has replaced Israel. And a large portion of Christianity to this day has declared that God has revoked Israel's election and he has replaced it with the Gentile church. See, here's the thing. Although Paul is speaking directly at Israel, at the same time these principles all apply to, to believers. Redeemed Israel and believers, Jew and Gentile, essentially belong to the same group, spiritually speaking. And we've been delivered by the same Messiah. We're all under the same covenants. We're the fulfillment of the same prophecies. And Paul is going to go to some lengths to speak on this complex matter in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It is complex enough that it is difficult for the many denominations of believers to come to an agreement on the subject. I maintain that it is a lack of understanding of first century Judaism and Jewish culture that's the real culprit here. We're going to work to sort that out over the next several weeks. Well, verse 32 seems to be Paul widening his scope now back to, being, back to including Gentile believers because he says, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare even his own son but gave him up on behalf of us all is it possible that having given us a son he would not give us everything else too? By saying us all the the indication is he's no longer speaking mainly to his Jewish 
brothers and he makes it clear by saying us all that regardless of racial or ethnic heritage God giving up his only son shows that his love extends to everyone not just to Jews thus reckons Paul if God is willing to do all that he's not suddenly going to throw in the towel and reverse course he's not going to send his son to the cross and then turn around and punish here meaning to condemn those who his son died to save so the meaning of the statement of verse 35 that asks us who will separate us from the love of Christ and then is followed with a list of hypothetical circumstances that theoretically could be the cause of separating believers from Messiah's love trouble, hardship, persecution, hunger, poverty, danger, war is that while all these listed circumstances could certainly happen to a believer neither the Messiah nor his father will pull back their love and be the cause of the separation Paul then quotes scripture to support his doctrine for your sake we are being put to death all day long we are considered sheep to be slaughtered now this passage is from Psalm 44 it's verse 23 and it is about Israel being persecuted by her enemies and exiled to the nations yet remaining faithful to God's covenant under the harshest of circumstances thus the psalm writer is appealing to God to come and deliver his people from their tribulation this is to back up what he has just said about trouble, hardship, war, etc. of itself itself not being able to separate God from his chosen people and since believers have now been included as among God's elect then this is to say that hardships and persecutions are nothing new for those who love God and that we can not only withstand it when it happens we ought to expect it to happen shouldn't surprise us Paul does not own a pair of rose colored glasses thus to end this long line of thought that began with Romans 7.1 and concludes with Romans 8.39 Paul says in conclusion nothing dead nothing alive not God's own loyal spiritual beings like angels nothing that currently exists nothing that will ever exist by any means no type of wicked spiritual force or power that refuses to take direction from God nothing that God will create by means of his own will none of this will be able to snatch us away from God's love shown through his Messiah that is comfort people that is comfort Paul is fully convinced that neither God nor anything whatsoever can stand between us and him but notice all of these things that theoretically could but won't be able to separate us from God's love are external to us you notice that? it's external to us completely out of our control all 
also notice that there's never an implication that as believers, we've lost our freedom, our freedom of thought, freedom of our bodies, freedom of our choices. That once saved, we are somehow blocked by God from walking away from His love at our own choosing. In fact, a dire warning. Some passages earlier in Romans 8, Paul says this in Romans 8, 12, and 13. So then, brothers, we don't owe a thing to our old nature that would require us to live according to our old nature. For if you live according to your old nature, you will die. But if by spirit you keep putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. We'll take up Romans chapter 9 next time.